I don't like wearing a suit. I don't like being boxed up in an office, and I won't be tethered down. I ride a fixed gear bike. That's a single speed. It's a steel frame with no brakes. No brakes because slowing down is what's going to get you hurt. The bike, it cannot coast. The pedals, they keep moving. They never stop turning. I can't stop, and I have no desire to. There are 1,500 bike messengers in New York City, and you can email it, you can FedEx it, you can scan it, but when there's something that needs to get from this place to that place at this time, you need me. Most people have no idea why we would risk our lives for 80 bucks on a good day. Pedestrians, they're a menace. Cab drivers, they'll kill you. So here's what I know. At one point or another, we're all going to get hit. But brakes, brakes are death. And I'm never going to quit. My name is Pastor Milo, and I am a bike enthusiast. <laughs> but those are not my words. That's the opening lines to a movie that you've probably never heard of. It's a B-level, boring movie for most people except for people like me. I had to clean it up a little bit to even share it with you here this morning. It's a movie called Premium Rush. It's about the bicycle messengers of New York City and the adrenaline-crazed culture of their very strange livelihood. But guess what? Even the guy, even the guy who said that his pedals would never stop moving, it all stopped moving. A year ago on Easter Sunday morning, multiple videos were released and they all went viral all over the web. There was videos that were posted of cyclists cruising down empty streets in New York City, the abandoned streets without a vehicle to be seen. And these were not the adrenaline-crazed junkies that I'm talking about. These were just couch potatoes out on their beach cruisers going through the middle of Manhattan. COVID-19 had taken the busiest place in the world, the city that never sleeps and seemingly knocked it out cold. All the excitement, all the adrenaline, all the rush was gone. Let's change settings for a moment. Imagine with me that you're there. You're in the garden, and it's early in the morning, and you see a gently winding path. And as you look down the path, it's shaded by olive branches, and here's what you see. You see a woman coming through the shadows. She's clasping her throat as if she is choking back tears. You know her. She's Mary. And as she walks through and she comes to the tomb, she puts her hand on the entrance. She bends in to look in, and then she scurries away. And as you watch, down that same path, a man in a flowing robe appears. It's John. He looks into the tomb. He waits, and he stands there. And soon after comes Peter. And Peter, a little out of breath, he pauses. He looks in, and then he charges right on in, followed slowly by John. Then as you watch, they depart quickly and they run off that same path out of the garden and Mary reappears. And you silently watch. You hold your breath as you watch her. Take her arm and place it on the entrance of the tomb. Put her forehead on her hand and begin sobbing and weeping uncontrollably. It's all over. 
Just one week ago, the streets were filled with people. They all gathered together. They were all crowding into the city streets. They were all chanting the name of Jesus. There was thousands of people. The city was surging with excitement. Jesus had rode into the city with all the pomp and circumstance of a military hero, except he did this other thing. He didn't come in riding on a horse. No, he sent his men out and he said, you go find me a donkey colt and I'll ride in on that because if I'm coming in like a warrior on a horse, the battle is still to be fought. If I'm coming in on a donkey colt, the battle's already won. And he came in, much less majestic and kind of slow, but it was a sign of peace and a sign that victory had already been won. And people, as they came in throngs and threw their cloaks and threw and, and laid palm branches that they had cut out of the forest, they, they laid those palm branches down and they, they laid them there and they started shouting and chanting, Hosanna! Hosanna is the King! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of David! Hosanna in the highest peace on earth! Goodwill toward men. But this morning, this morning, it's all eerily quiet. The crowds are gone. The streets, they're empty. The morning is still. Two days, two days ago, as Mary and the few that remained, they stood around at the foot of the cross, and her teacher, her friend, the one that they thought was the Son of Man, is what he called himself, had suffered the full force of a Roman crucifixion, torturous, terrible death. For Mary, it's all over. Now for us, friends, it's Easter Sunday. And I'm super excited that you're here. We have much to celebrate. Jesus is alive. And just like the news of Jesus' resurrection was able to bring hope to people who are overwhelmed by despair and by grief in the first century, we need to know that that same hope will sustain us today in our most difficult times that you may be going through, whatever that may be. We've got some guests here with this morning. That's what I love about Easter. We've always got some guests. And I'd love the opportunity to meet you, to shake your hand, to connect with you, to get to know you. If you're watching online, I'd love to connect with you in that way as well. But if you just checked in today and today's the only time you ever get to hear from me, if today's the only time that you're ever going to look at a passage together with us, you need to hear this thing. That in this world, in this human experience, we need a hope, a hope that is rooted in reality not rooted in an emotional thought or in positive thinking. We need a hope, and you need a hope that will sustain you in the most difficult of times. So yes, it is Easter, and we do have much to celebrate. But before we get there, we're going to lean in a little bit this morning with Mary and what was happening in the wee hours of the morning. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, you can take it out of the pew back in front of you. We're in John chapter 20 this morning. If you're not familiar with where to find it, you look in the center of your Bible and make your way to the right towards the New Testament. Follow the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'll be in the New International Version for any of you who are following along on digital devices this morning. We're leaning in. Mary Magdalene is there. She is crying 
She is weeping. There is deep disappointment on her. There's deep disappointment in the words of those men who, who go down the road to Emmaus. As far as they knew as well, it was all over. This was it. All hope was lost. In Luke, we read these words. It says, we were hoping that it was he who was going to come and redeem Israel. We were hoping. You see, as they walked down the road that morning, all their hopes that Jesus had been the Messiah were gone. He was dead. All hope was lost. And on top of the shock of Jesus' grisly death and having to experience that, the Apostle Peter, now their de facto leader of their little band, was now wrestling with his own failures and all that he had done in denying the Lord. And he wasn't alone. All of the disciples were guilty of abandoning him and fleeing away from Christ. And so it was to such a people, to such a group of overwhelmed people in a dark cloud of grief, that the, ba- the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, where victory swallows up the grave, this is what breaks in and overwhelms them with hope. And the fact that Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven, soon to return to his own can break in for you this morning as well with a genuine hope that we can have today. No matter what type of storm that you may find yourself in this morning, no matter how thick you feel like the cloud is around you this morning, genuine hope is available to you today. So let's take a closer look. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So when she saw the empty tomb, Mary's first reaction was to think the body of Jesus was stolen away. She wasn't wishing for her. She wasn't anticipating or if she wasn't thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. She didn't even imagine that possibility. She thought that the tomb had been tampered with and that grave robbers had come and taken away the body. And so what did she do? She ran for help. She ran to find Peter and John. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So Peter and John, they hear this news that Mary is sharing, and they immediately take off running for the tomb. This, This is telling us here that they both ran and ran hard in order to get there. You see, Peter and John had just heard the life-changing news that the tomb was empty. They weren't indifferent to it when they heard this news. They weren't detached from it. No, they had to go. They had to see it for themselves. And in keeping with the author's humility, if you've read through the Gospel of John, John never refers to himself directly, but only as the other disciple, it says here. Scripture tells us that the other disciple bent over and he saw the grave clothes, but something kept him from going on into the tomb. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came along with him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of cloth lying there, as well as the cloth had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also then he went inside. He saw and he believed. 
For they still had not understood from Scripture what Jesus had said to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So this mixture of ointments and aloes and spices placed on the body during the burial process would have dried and would have hardened all the linen cloths, making them something like a mummy or something like a cocoon. So this neat orderly arrangement of the linen cloths showed that no human hand had come and torn apart those linens to take away the body of Christ. And as he is looking in at John, is probably not immediately aware that the body is not within that cocoon. And as he, as he looks in there and sees the burial wrappings of Jesus, it demonstrates for him very clearly as he gets closer the absolutely unique thing that had happened that morning. The now empty tomb. For John, this is what he says. He says he looks and it clicks and it all makes sense to him. All at once, he says, he looked and he believed. For his older friend, disciple Peter, however, it took a little longer. Luke 24 tells us that he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So they leave and they go home to talk about it. And Mary Mary, the one who had brought them this news in the first place. Maybe she wasn't as quick of a runner as they were, or she had just sprinted to go get them in the first place. She comes back in, and now she's left all alone again to try to figure out what has just happened. After they see what they see, Peter and John leave, and we find her standing again outside of the tomb, weeping. She wanted to find Jesus, Jesus' body, that is. She wanted to find Jesus' body, and she expected Peter and John to be able to help her to do so, to be able to help her to go finding, because thinking for her was that in an overwhelmingly cruel action, someone had come to the grave, pulled away the stone, and added insult to injury by robbing Jesus' body from the grave. Let's continue, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? With her mind in this emotional state, Mary stoops down. She looks into the tomb where she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the foot of where the body of Jesus Christ had been lying. They ask Mary, woman, why are you crying? And in just a few moments, Jesus will ask her the same question. And he say, why are you crying? And then he'll ask her a second question. He says, who are you seeking? Check this out, verse 13. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Now let's think about it for a second. Neither Jesus nor the angels were asking these questions to gain information because they didn't understand what it was she was seeking for. Do you, you get that? Because rather they wanted Mary and they want you and I to think through, to process the implications of an empty grave. Because by asking these questions and by doing so, we will learn something about the risen Savior that will turn our personal storms into breakthroughs of hope. So let's explore these two questions. The first question was, why are you crying? 
Why are you crying? The point of this repeated question was to get Mary to process sorrow in light of the fact that Jesus was now risen. So watching the emotional and disturbing crucifixion of her teacher, her friend, her Savior was very traumatic. And there's the emotional shock that she must have been going through to see such an event. But Mary was now crying in sorrow because as she looks into the tomb, the grave is empty. When she should be crying and weeping in joy because the grave is empty. Mary thought that evil men had triumphed over God's sovereign purposes. They had killed Jesus, and now they had stolen away his body. Twice in this passage he says, and they have taken away my Lord. Isn't that an ironic thing to be able to say? They have taken away my Lord. Do you think that if he is really Lord and Savior that he could be taken away? If God gives his angels charge concerning the Messiah to guard him in all of his ways, then surely God would not permit the crucifixion and then allow his body to be stolen away against his sovereign will. They've allowed my Lord to be taken away, she says. But don't get me wrong. Mary's not that far off track. We must understand why she would come to this conclusion because behind the scenes, this is exactly the story that is beginning to spread all over the city. Matthew 28, 28 tells us that when the Roman guards, who were scared out of their skin, by the way, that when the Roman guards came back and they reported back to the chief priests everything that had happened, the way that the grave had been opened up, they assembled the crowd of priests, they assembled the elders all together, and they agree on this plan. They bribed the soldiers with large sums of money. And we are told they, they bribed them to say that someone had come in during the night and taken away the body. Mary isn't off base at all. This is exactly what evil men were trying to do. Evil men that were trying to destroy everything. But she's forgotten. She's forgotten that, that God is sovereign and evil men cannot do anything to thwart his perfect and eternal purpose, which is why she's asked the second question. Why are you crying? Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? You see, clearly Mary right now is seeking a dead Lord. Her devotion to Jesus is commendable, but really what good would it have been done for her to go out and find the body and then haul it back to the tomb, put it back in place so that she could add a few more embalming spices to it? A dead religion that's all dressed up on the corpse of a dead prophet doesn't do any of us any good. No, only a living Savior who has triumphed over the grave offers any hope to you and to me and to Mary for our sorrows, for our lives. So think about it. When all the people had gathered a week previous, when the city was thriving with excitement, when they were all there on Palm Sunday, and when they all cheered, and they all celebrated, when they all worked themselves up into a frenzy, who was it that they were seeking? Were they seeking Jesus? No, do you know who they were seeking? They were seeking a leader. They were seeking a king who was just like King David. 
Yes, they were seeking the one who God had promised to establish his throne and his kingdom forever, but they weren't seeking the one that David the king had foreshadowed. They were actually seeking the shadow itself. They were seeking someone, some king, that looked exactly like the image of David. And what they knew about King David's persona, that was the actual thing that they were seeking. And here's the thing about King David. King David was dead. King David lived 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ. 1,000 B.C.E., 1,000 years before Common Era. 1,000 years before any of this happened. 1,000 years, David is super dead. But don't get me wrong. David's story, it's incredible. And for many of you who have traveled with us on this journey about the life of David over the last few months, if you've been here with us, we would all agree it's riveting. And as we studied the life of David, he's the shepherd boy who has come, this unlikely king, and we've watched him move from the pasture to the throne, and from the throne then to the cave as he is hiding, as his son Absalom has this insurrection to take over, the, the, take over his throne and try to steal away the palace from him. We've watched him fight great battles, and we've watched this young boy walk down into the valley while all of the other soldiers are cowering in the hills. And as he walks down into the valley, wearing his shepherd clothes, carrying nothing more than a sling, you can almost hear the timpani drum beating the death march. And yet, who is it that comes out of the valley? We've screamed at the TV. Remember the episode when David, when he begins uh, to, to pursue after Bathsheba, and we're saying, no, David, no, don't do it. We celebrated the moments of victory, great faith that he has. Even in exile, even while in the wilderness, even while in the cave, he rests because his security is found in the Lord. Who could write such a story? But studying David's life is instrumental and helpful for us to see the harsh realities of what happens in the human experience in a fallen world. You cannot read the story of David without concluding that this world that we live in is a horribly broken place. And you can see that brokenness in the heart of even this man of faith. He's not a perfect man. David sinned, and he sinned badly. And you can see in the brokenness of that sin of what it does to his family. You see tragically the specific consequences of sin. You see it in the political deception and you see it in war. And you see it in betrayal and you see it even in the weakness of this old man, David, and how his old age crushes him. You should recognize the world of David. Because it's the world that you and I live in as well. A broken, fallen world. You see, King David's story is, is for you and for me, and it's meant to be for anyone who would read it, was that it's a finger that points. It constantly points again and again and again to the true king, to the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything about the life of David points to him. It points to our need of him and points to the hope that can only be found in him. And that's why these questions that are being asked of Mary are so poignant who are you seeking? 
In Luke's account of his gospel, it says the angels even pressed further. He says, why do you seek what? The living among the dead. King David, he is dead. So who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Later, Peter, after taking time to process the events of resurrection morning. Peter, after being restored there on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus looks at him face to face. Peter, after seeing the Holy Spirit come like a rushing wind over the first church gathering there in the book of Acts. Peter begins his Pentecost sermon by explaining that the early Christians had received the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about Jesus. He talks about his arrest. He talks about his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. He explains that it was not possible for Jesus to be held down, to be pressed down by death. But notably for us today, as we look at this, he does so by making a comparison to a certain dead king. Guess who? It's David. Acts 2, beginning in verse 29, says this. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David... He died and was buried. In his tomb, it is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he, would, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. 31. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Whoa. What is being said here by Peter is he's saying that David, believing God's long-term promise, knew that the Messiah could not be bound, could not be held, could not be chained, could not be kept down by death. He would not be able and would not decay in the tomb. Peter is reinforcing again that the entire purpose of David's life was to point us forward to the Messiah. And furthermore, Peter is saying that those who were there listening to his message, he is saying, we were and we are, we are all witnesses of this. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, has made him both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What should we do? What should we do? You see, Jesus had an enormous, painful, torturous work to accomplish. He bore the weight of the whole world, the sins of the whole world. And it's something that we cannot even imagine with his death on the cross. His death on the cross, we, we sort of understand the physical agony that he must have been in, the physical pain that he endured. But when he screams out in pain, it's when his eternal father has turned away from him and the son felt the full wrath of God the Father on him because of your sin and mine. You see, at that moment on the cross, there was no presence of the Holy Father. The relationship had been broken. There was no joy. There was no pleasure. 
But the resurrection and the ascension turns this story around. And Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection, was welcomed back into perfect communion and perfect union with God the Father. And all of the delights of this union, all the joy of this union, they become available not only to him but to us as well. And we can gain nothing greater in the new heavens and the new earth than God himself. And the full joy that received that comes from his presence and being in relationship with God. But that gift, that gift that was freely given was not freely purchased. That fellowship was bought for us at a tremendous cost. And how do we receive this gift? They, they, they who are listening there to Peter, they said, what are we supposed to do then? Those who are struck to the heart says, what are we supposed to do? He responds, he says, repent of your sin and be baptized. Repent, turn from your sinful desires that are keeping you separated from relationship with God. Repent, turn from those things. Repent, turn your mind's attention, turn your heart's affection, turn it towards the one who has defeated death itself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Repent, Peter tells them. Be baptized, Peter tells them. He says, let your first step of obedience in this new life, in this new walk, to be baptized. Be baptized in order to tell the story that anyone who would hear, that anyone who would see your baptism, that anyone would listen to the witness that you are giving to demonstrate externally the internal change that has happened inside of you. Uh, ba being baptized in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of Christ death raised to walk in newness of life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Do you believe that today? If we return back to that morning one more time, you'll see Mary as she comes face to face with her risen Savior. Mary is weeping. She's looked inside now, and there are two men. They are there at the head and at the foot. And they ask her this question, why are you crying? And she says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. And as she is stalking, she is stooping down and looking inside the tomb. And all the while, Jesus is right behind her. How did she find out? How did she figure out that Jesus was there? We're not sure. Maybe the angels, they pointed and said, hey, hey, look behind you. I'm not sure. Maybe she heard footsteps. But she turns away from the tomb. She turns towards Jesus who asks these questions. He says, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? And this is what she says in verse 20, or uh, verse 15. Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. And at that point, she must have turned back. Now she has looked into Jesus' face, did not recognize him, thinking he was a gardener. She turns, she looks back towards the tomb, buried her head once again and begins weeping once again. And then, and then something is about to change. This man is about to speak one word that's going to turn her spinning back around. 
She's going to spin back around and look into Jesus, and she's going to recognize him. One word, one word, and all of her fears, all of her sorrows, all of her discontent is going to melt away. One word, and she is going to instantly recognize Jesus. And that one word is what? It's her own name. And he says it to her in probably a familiar way. Mary. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned towards him. She cries out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. In the fog, in the storm, in the crisis, do you hear his voice? Do you hear his voice? Jesus is right there, and she doesn't recognize him. I wonder how many times in your life has Jesus been right there and you thought, you were thinking, he's so far away, he doesn't care, he's not paying attention to anything about me. When Jesus has promised you, he's promised you and he's promised me, he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. When he said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So what's happened? Your circumstance, your pain, your fog has clouded your reality and your view. And that's all that you can see, and that's all that you can think about. But Jesus, he's still there. He hasn't moved. And the author of the universe, the one who created you and formed you, who who made you in the womb, is calling your name. He's still there. He's calling you. Maybe you're here today and you can't remember a time when you heard Jesus call your name. Maybe you're here and the story isn't personal to you. Wouldn't you like it to be? Friends, there's nothing particularly special about Mary Magdalene and Apostle Peter. They were just regular, ordinary people who heard Jesus, the Messiah, call their name. Here in the early morning fog, he calls Mary's name. Later, along the Sea of Galilee, he calls Peter's name. He says, Peter, and he looks him in the eye in a similar fashion. Hear me this morning, friend. Jesus loves you, and he is calling your name. The regular, ordinary people sitting right here or sitting right there, wherever this happens to be, wherever you're watching from this morning, wherever you're listening to the sound of my voice, when we look in our Bibles, the other disciple, the other one, the young one, John, who who, who had run there that morning as well, he writes this. For as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. Isn't that wonderful? A child of the King. And King Jesus is calling your name. As the band comes this morning, as the band comes, we need to be reminded Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, he, he calls his sheep by name and they do what? They recognize his voice. He calls Mary and she spins around. And she says, my teacher, the sheep, they recognize the voice of the shepherd. How does she know that voice? How does she know that voice? Because she has heard it before. She's heard it. She recognizes that voice because she's been in the presence of that voice. She's been in the presence of Jesus long enough to recognize it. Do you recognize the voice of God? For those of you who have heard his voice a long time ago, who responded to the call of him calling your name a long time ago, have you lost track of it somewhere along the way in the fall?
Have you gotten away from being in regular uh, time with God in prayer and with scriptures so that you, you've lost the familiarity with the shepherd's voice? How will you be able to tell the difference between his voice and the voice of your, your mother's tapes playing in the back of your mind, or his voice and the voice of the media, or his voice and the voice of your peers, or the voice of false prophets all telling you what to do? How will you be able to know? How will you be able to say, it's the voice of Jesus, I recognize it, I'm familiar with it, it's the shepherd's voice, and he is calling my name. He's calling my name. Mary is reunited with her Savior. She's comforted by her Lord, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. And she does something, something that you and I must do today. We must do this when we leave this place, as we go out into the community, as we gather together with our friends or with our family, as we go out of this place. She goes and she tells everyone what she has experienced. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with this news. I have seen the Lord, she says. And she told them all the things that he had said to her. I have seen the Lord, she says. I have heard his voice. He called my name. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Just like the angel said. Why would you seek? to living among the dead. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen 